0: I am uh, tremendously honored to be here. Um, I, my wife and I, uh, our family, one of the coolest things about living in Washington, D.C., where we moved a year and a half ago to start GCC Capitol Hill, is that even on the most boring days in Washington, D.C., you have the National Mall. You have the museums. You have the monuments. And I feel like for you all, as a local church, on Wednesday nights, you have the National Mall of Ministry. in Pastor AJ, and Pastor Talus, and Bishop Brett, and Pastor Tiffany, Pastor Miata, Pastor Corey. Seriously, the, the teaching that comes forth uh, in this house, it is, it's a beautiful and a powerful thing. So it really is an honor to, to minister to you tonight. Um, Secondly, I wanted to just give a quick update on GCC Capitol Hill, just because many of you all have been praying for us, you've been asking us how it's going, Um, you've been following along, and we just celebrated our one-year anniversary as a church, and just... Inspired by Grace Loves and all that Pastor Corey has done here uh, in Chantilly, your all's generosity, what you're doing in the community, we've, we've attempted to do really the um, same kind of thing. And so we've been partnering with Gallaudet University, which is the only deaf and hearing impaired university in the country, in the world. Uh, we have a young lady who's a professional ASL interpreter. So we're making inroads with reaching that community. Um, Sasha Bruce, which is an organization that serves homeless youth, Little Lights, uh, a similar organization, we're doing our best to get out in the community and embodying grace to meet the needs. Amen? But one thing I'm really excited about here on Easter Sunday, we had a family um, who came to church who, maybe about nine months ago, my wife met this woman and her two kids at a playground in D.C., and she tried to minister to the woman, had a good conversation with her. A couple months later, she ran into the same woman and her husband at a different park in D.C., a different playground. And so they were like, wow, this is amazing. You know, she remembered uh, Elise, my wife, and so she had another moment to pray for them. They were looking for a house. A couple months later, my wife and I, our family, were at another playground in D.C. You can tell what we do a lot on Saturday. <laughs> And we see the same family at a playground that we had never been to, that they had never been to. As soon as they see us, the wife bursts into tears. So we said, hey, we got to stop relying on the Holy Spirit to orchestrate <laughs> these moments. We actually need to plan something ourselves. So last week on Good Friday, we got together at guess where? A playground. <laughs> and at the end of, of our time, the husband, who they've gone through a lot, um, Looks at me and he goes, Hey, we're going to come to church on Sunday. And they came with their family. They had an amazing time. That's a small example of what happens when we plant churches, when we see every city or every ward in Washington, D.C. with a Grace Covenant Church. Amen? Amen. Tonight we are continuing our series, But Why? Why did Jesus have to die? Now, in case you're, uh, maybe this is your first Wednesday in a while or you're new here, Pastor Corey kicked off this series talking about how Jesus brought us out from underneath the spear. That Jesus purchased our freedom. Pastor Jermaine continued talking about the key that Christ has given us through his resurrection life. That we now live in that resurrection from the reality of that resurrection. And then last week, Pastor Duke, that we've been brought near. The Apostle Paul talked about how we've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And so now we're on this journey of discovery. I love that picture where we are getting to know what it means to walk with God and to be changed by him. And so, so far, most of these messages have centered on how the cross impacts our life and relationship with God. And so tonight, I want to kind of take more of a horizontal approach, because that's really what Paul uh, leads into here in these verses that we're going to look at, and how we relate to each other, how the cross impacts our relationship with each other. If you could join me in standing, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. The title of this message is, But Why, Making Peace, Making Peace. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, soul-making peace. You can go ahead and have a seat. Father, we thank you for this peace that your son has secured for us. Lord, I recognize even in a church, God, there's conflict. There's things that we have to work through. And so I'm asking that the peace of Jesus Christ would reign in our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Peace seems pretty elusive today. Just culturally speaking. Like if we just look at various aspects of our culture today, peace can be hard to find. A couple of nights ago, Minnesota Timberwolves star defender, Jaden McDaniels punched a wall out of frustration at the end of the first quarter and as a result broke his hand. In the same game, on the same team, veteran power forward center Rudy Gobert punched his own teammate at a timeout. In the team huddle, resulting in a one-game suspension. In one game, this team lost two of their better players. Hostility amongst the same team. We've been following over a year now the conflict with Ukraine and Russia, the rising death toll. Tens of thousands of people have been killed in that war. You see it in the business world. When I was a finance major, we learned about hostile takeovers Elon Musk taking over Twitter, $45 billion, complex lawsuits, massive layoffs. In D.C. and locally, my backyard, there's been a series of carjackings. Had a buddy who we coached our uh, eight-year-old kids basketball who recently was a victim of a hit and run. This guy is a little bit of a different brother. Okay, because he actually chased down the people who hit his car, (laughs) is on the phone with the 911 operator who's begging him not to do this, takes them into a cul-de-sac, corners them, all the people run out of the car except for one person in the car. And so he graciously subdues this young, he was a 13-year-old boy, and His mom, they called his mom, the police officers, they had a moment to talk with him. This is happening in our own neighborhood. Our own youth are experiencing this kind of hostility. Now, there's one area uh, that's exempt from hostility. Our political arena is free from any kind of conflict, um, so we'll just skip right over that. But more surprisingly... (laughs) More surprising, because we recognize from Scripture, Scripture tells us that there will be trouble in this world. So we're not surprised when we see conflict in our culture, right? Yeah. But what is surprising to most of us is when we experience hostility or tension or relational conflict in the church. Because the church is supposed to be the one place that we all have it figured out, Right? where we all have the name of Jesus, we're all submitted to the lordship of Jesus. So it's kind of like surprising, it's shocking when we experience hostility in a church. And as a pastor, I've seen kind of firsthand how most of us navigate those kind of conflicts. What happens is, normally, is when there is that conflict, when it reaches a boiling point, what do we do? We leave and go to another church. Now, normally, you know, we'll cite, like, oh, the preaching's not deep enough, right? We're not connecting with people. Uh, Perhaps, you know, we disagree over the way something was handled. But in reality, most of the time, it's over, what, relational issues. Maybe you don't leave a church, but maybe you just kind of simply avoid that person that you're having conflict with, right? Like, maybe you just go to the 845 service if you're going to 1045 um, maybe you go to a different small group perhaps they're not going to notice heck now that we have multiple GCC locations you can just go to another GCC location (laughs) never mind if you live in Washington DC if you want to go to GCC Sterling hey may mean that you won't have to see that person that you don't like seeing the problem is that church is a family And if me and my wife with our four little kids under the age of eight try to separate them, try to have them avoid each other, it's just a matter of time before what? Before they rub shoulders. What I want to explore tonight is when you experience that conflict, because it's not if, it's when. Or maybe for some of you, the conflict that you're experiencing right now with a small group leader, service team member, maybe if you're a greeter, usher, worship team, maybe with a pastor or a leader, what do you do? What implications, if any, does Jesus' death have on those kind of relational issues? Now, we all know that we should work through those, but most of us, if we're honest, we don't have the tools. So we have this offense that just kind of sits there And a wall that forms, and it becomes a wall that we're so hurt we can't break through. Now, what's helpful in this whole discussion is the Bible has a very rich explanation as to the source of conflict and how it's continued throughout time. I mean, just to give you a quick uh, maybe survey of hostility in the Bible here, you have Adam and Eve who are in this perfect world that God's created, enjoying perfect fellowship with God, they sin and as a result, hostility comes into the world. And when they have the next generation, when they have Cain and Abel, you think, okay, maybe that hostility ends with Adam and Eve since they're the ones that sinned, but then Cain murders his brother Abel. Then there's Noah. God says he's so fed up with, with all of the evil that's in the world, he's gonna start over with this man and his family, Noah. They get on a boat, The flood, God's wrath, And then right after Noah is the Tower of Babel. More confusion, more chaos, more conflict. And you got Abraham. God's gonna kind of start with one man. He's gonna birth a nation out of this one man and his family. He's gonna use this family to bless the world. But Abraham lies about his wife multiple times. His sons Isaac and Jacob aren't much better, right? They have their own issues. Then you have Moses, who delivers the people of Israel out of Egypt, going into a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, really the epitome of what a location of peace ought to look like. And Moses disqualifies himself when he strikes the rock. The people go into the promised land, but they don't obey God. They don't drive out the inhabitants entirely. And more war, more conflict, more death, more disease takes place. Then you got David. Now Israel's got a king. They have a God promises through the prophet Nathan that David and his kingdom will endure forever. So you're thinking, okay, David is going to be the one that turns turns the tide. But David commits murder, commits adultery, and as a result, hostility is really the byproduct in his family from that point forward. And then finally, we get to the cross. We get to Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death on the cross. And you you figure, okay, now things have been righted completely. We'll never have any more conflict again. And then you have Ananias and Sapphira who lie to the Holy Spirit and are struck dead. So the Bible reveals, now I'm going a little deep. This is the Wednesday night crew. Are you cool with that? We're going to go a little bit deep. Okay, okay. I'm just making sure I'm in the right crowd this, this evening. Okay, so the Bible reveals that hostility really is in the world. It's the status quo. It's the raging current that things left to themselves will result in division, enmity, hostility. You don't have to teach your kids. You don't have to teach people how to be hostile, how to be at odds, how to get offended, how to separate, how to leave. Yet, here's the yet right here. Yet for the believer, Christ's finished work on the cross ought to produce something different, amen? In the church, something should be different. Hopefully, there's a difference between what we experience as the people of God and what exists out there in the world. And so that really sets up Paul and his letter to the church in Ephesus, is he's writing to help them overcome a very specific uh, tension between two groups, the Jews and Gentiles. And the challenge for me this week, as I'm getting through, as I was going through this passage is that most of us aren't too familiar with like Jewish practices and you know we read this passage it's like the laws and commandments express in ordinances what uh, anybody follow me here like it's just like it seems like almost like another language right so a little bit of context you have Jewish Christians who see the inclusion of the gentiles this people this new people who've been brought into the family of God as inferior because they lack the rich, extensive history that the the Jewish Christians had, they could trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. The Gentiles didn't abide by the same dietary uh, regulations. They didn't observe the same religious days uh, and festivals. They didn't circumcise their boys. And so then you had the Gentiles who saw the Jews as rigid. Um, They saw them as proud, almost as like a bit standoffish. So I want to provide a little bit of a uh, modern-day example. Now, this is uh, this is always you know as soon as you mention politics, everybody gets on line. I promise you, I'm not going to offend anybody with this, but I want you to picture the most extreme caricature of each of our country's two political parties, okay? Just, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna name anybody, I'm not gonna you know, give you any pictures of what these people might be wearing, right? But I want you just to picture, okay, red, blue, who is the most fringe, extreme person on either of those sides? Now imagine both of them radically get saved at Grace Covenant Chantilly. <laughs> And they've been asked to lead by Pastor AJ, by Hannah Beth, they've been asked to lead a small group together. (laughs) Conflict, how many of you know in that situation, conflict would be unavoidable. It's a matter of time. Something, I mean, the worldviews are so opposite, they're coming out of something, and there's still, I mean, the process of sanctification, it takes time. So you have these two groups who are so polar opposite, and the problem is that every part of their lives intersects with their worship of God and community. So I would imagine, you know, the Gentiles, when it comes to worship, they're trying to remix the top 40 secular songs about Artemis, the great mother goddess of Ephesus. They're trying to, you know, it's like Kanye just got saved and they want to remix Jesus' walks and sing it in the church. Then you got Jewish Christians, on the other hand, who are, you know, purists. They want to sing Psalm 136 and repeat the refrain, his mercy endures forever, all hundred times in that psalm. As the lady in the front blows the shofar off beat, right? That's really the picture of what you have going on. I mean, you take like a staff level, okay? You have a Gentile senior level staff member and his or her entry-level Jewish Christian employee wants to take half the year off to celebrate Passover and the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Booths. And you're wondering, will this person ever work? Will they ever come to work and do the job? They're always taking time off. You have a Gentile married couple who has a baby boy And their Jewish Christian chaplain shows up with a big knife and a big smile. (laughs) Church picnics. The newly saved Gentile caterer brought pulled pork but forgot the pulled chicken. And now you have Jewish Christians angrily eating potato salad on the side. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but... I mean, it's just, you're getting the picture. It's just a matter of time. Everything as a church is so intertwined. We bring our culture, we bring our language into things. In fact, one church growth specialist, an ecclesiologist, somebody who studies churches, looked at our every nation world and said, I love what you guys are doing. You guys are doing a great thing. But one thing you need to stop doing if you want to grow, stop doing this multi-ethnic thing. It's too hard. It's really cool to be multi-ethnic, right? I mean, it looks good on social media, on the pictures and the website, right? We got every person represented there. But do you sing Chris Tomlin or Todd Delaney? Do you have a small group cookout on the 4th of July or Juneteenth? Are we gonna do, when we come together as congregations, are we gonna do the service in English and translate to Spanish and Korean? Or are we gonna do the, service in Korean and translate to Spanish and English, or are we going to do the service in Spanish and translate to English and Korean? And that's just three languages. These are are really pressure points. Multi-ethnic church, these are some of our pressure points, and pressure points often lead to hostility, conflict, issues that have to be resolved, that have to be worked through. So what do we do with all this? hostility? I want you to look at how our passage starts and ends today. It's just two verses, verse 14. For he himself is our peace. That's how it begins. And then it ends, the last three words, of these two verses, talking about Jesus, so making peace. So Jesus is our peace, and he's on a mission to make peace in us. Now, Paul, this is really a major theme of the book of Ephesians. He begins the book of Ephesians after he introduces himself. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds like kind of a perfunctory greeting. He does that in a lot of his other letters. But really, grace and peace are major themes in Paul's writings. We talk a lot about grace in the church, but not so much about peace. Paul uses the word peace 43 times in his letters Eight of those are in Ephesians. Four of those, half of those, are right here in this section, these couple verses. So if we're going to overcome offense, the hurt, the bitterness, the conflicts that we have with each other, we need to know, one, what is peace? Two, how do we experience it? Three, when it gets hard, why do we need it? Why is it worth it to contend for that? So first, what is peace? Now, I would submit to you that most of us have an inaccurate view of peace. Peace to me at first, you know, when I first hear it, it kind of seems a bit squishy to me. Like really passive, Weak. Peace is like, you know, you're walking around, you don't want to rock the boat, you're tiptoeing around, you're, it's like this artificial harmony, making sure everybody's good. It's like the family that has all kinds of issues, but on, you know, Easter or Christmas or Thanksgiving, we're going to sit around the table and pretend like everything's good, right? Like nobody asked Chandra about her relationship, nobody asked Brian to talk about politics, like we're going to just pretend that we're all good here, okay? That's kind of the image I think we have of peace. But when Paul talks about peace, really he's talking about two things. One in its most broadest sense, he's talking about our well-being. Our well-being. Now, what I love, I get Christmas cards from many of you. I love Pastor Duke, Mrs. Kathy, I love your Christmas card. Because every year when they send their Christmas card, you see the two of them, they're smiling, they have their three adult children, their spouses, they have all the grandkids, and when you see that picture, that seems like a well a family that has a sense of well-being amen like that's just peace. and that's really a picture of what peace is it's it's this well-being it's like i'm sure there's issues going on in your family i'm sure there's things happening but internally there's this non-anxious presence you meet someone who's walking in peace they're not frantic they're not slandering or gossiping about other people it's well with their souls And often the peace that they're experiencing is in spite of some real turbulent waters that they're navigating relationally, maybe in their health. Meaning peace doesn't mean easy. Peace doesn't mean easy. And most of us, when we think about peace and experiencing, it, we think, okay, if I could just get a more peaceful situation, a new life, a new job, a new city, maybe a new church, then I would live a peaceful existence. And yet, what picture, when you think of Jesus, because Jesus is our peace, when you think of Jesus and peace, what do you think of? I think of Jesus in the boat as the wind and the storms are raging. And there the circumstances are absolutely insane. The disciples are frantically trying to save their lives, calling on him to do something, and he's asleep. Maybe you're thinking at this point, well, I I don't really have any difficulties with anybody in the room. I don't have any real offenses. And I would suggest to you, if that's the case, then maybe one, you haven't been here long enough. Or two, you haven't been close enough to anybody to have conflict. If if you've been here for a while and you don't have any conflict, that actually might be part of the problem. Because you can't be at odds with somebody that you're not in proximity with. Peace is both a general well-being, but then it's also acceptance or friendship, even despite real differences, and at times, even offense. Again, going back to Jesus being our peace. Think about some of the relationships that he had. James and John, they're calling down thunder or lightning from heaven, right? They're they're asking Jesus to sit on his right hand and his left. And Jesus is still choosing to walk with these men. Judas, who for three years, Jesus is watching steal money from the money bag. He knows Judas is going to betray him, and yet he still chooses to walk in peace with Judas. Peter, who denies him three times. Thomas, who doubts him. These are people who had serious issues, and yet Jesus overlooks offenses, and in the midst of tremendous Challenges relationally chooses peace. I mean, you look at this church. People like Bishop Brett and Pastor Jim who've walked together for decades. Pastor J C, Pastor Tiffany, Lou, Patriarchs, Pastor Corey. I mean, there's so many examples here in this room of people who've chosen to walk together and to choose the cross over their offenses. So how do we experience that peace? Peace peace is a person. We talked about that. Jesus is our peace. And I would just add to that, if anything besides Jesus is our peace, anything even good things, like if our common interests or our personalities, like we really love when this person preaches or we really love when our worship team does this song or our history, what happens when new people join? What happens when... We don't sing the song that we like. What happens when that preacher doesn't preach? What happens when, fill in the blank. If anything besides Jesus is our, is our peace, it's just a matter of time before we're gonna walk away. Peace is a person, peace is an act. I think a lot of times when we think about Jesus, we think he had this kind of peace aura that just emanated from him, and if we know Jesus, that peace aura will emanate from us. And that's where the cross comes in. Because peace was an event. It was the cross. And Pastor Duke touched on this. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. He has broken down in the flesh, meaning that what Jesus did on the cross secured our peace. He gave himself up for this. It cost him his very life. Peace was secured by Jesus entering into the greatest conflict that's ever existed. A holy God and an unholy people. And Jesus stood right in the middle of that. And he endured the pain and the suffering. He was torn apart. Here it is. So we wouldn't have to be relationally. Now some of you, I love you. And I want to speak to you frankly. Some of us here are allowing the most important relationships of our lives to be torn apart because of an offense. You're carrying something that Jesus died to carry on your behalf. You're separating yourself when Jesus has called you to be joined together. How did the person of Jesus and the event of the cross secure us peace, Paul drills down here. He says he has made us both one. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. He's made us both one. And when I think of that joining, I think of marriage. It's one of the chief examples that we have of God joining two people together. And my wife and I, we enjoyed a honeymoon of an existence as a married couple for a long time but how many of you married couples know that that honeymoon stage is not a forever stage, amen? And I was shocked when we started to see each other our flaws, and for me, in July of 2020, a major difference rose to the surface because I thought myself, you know, a pretty cognizant, aware person, having grown up in this church, even just racially having friends and and spiritual family of different ethnicities. And yet I recognized when everything that happened in our culture with George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, that we were seeing the same events. We were experiencing them very differently. And, you know, I'm more of a thinker. I'm like, so I'm processing things through writing and, and teaching on things and and my wife is more of a feeler, and after a couple weeks of her really mourning, I got to the point where I thought, and I'll be honest with you, it's sad that I thought this, but can't we just move on? This is exhausting emotionally. I was feeling a little bit of what she felt. And yet, when we were joined together, her history became my history. And I can't voluntarily leave my history because it's now a part of my history. What Paul is saying is he's he's talking about these two groups who've been joined together, whose histories have been joined together, whose lives in Christ have been joined together. And that's something that you can't separate from. It wasn't always that way, and Paul talks a little bit about this. He says that, this, he talks about this dividing wall of hostility. Now, the Jews were God's chosen people. In the Old Testament, at one point, God was keeping them separate or distinct. That's where some of these bizarre laws come from: ceremonial laws about uh, animal sacrifices and not wearing two uh, cloth with two different kinds of thread. But there was a purpose behind that. God was keeping his people unique. And for the most part, God was saving a people. He was preserving a people for himself and the Jewish people. There were exceptions. There were people like Rahab and Ruth and the Ninevites who Jonah preached to. There were people like the Roman centurion who Jesus ministered to, the Canaanite woman. But by and large, this was a Jewish operation. And then you have this part about the dividing wall of hostility. So in the first century, in the temple of Jerusalem, there was an outer court that only the, the, that the Gentiles, was, that was the only place that they could go. And there was an inner court, that were, that's where the Jews could worship. And separating those two areas was this wall of partition that kept the Gentiles out from worshiping with the Jews. And there was actually an inscription on the wall in Greek. It said, no stranger is to enter. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. So if a Gentile was to somehow get through that partition, it would result in in death. Which makes Paul's analogy here all the more powerful, that Jesus has broken down in his flesh that dividing wall of hostility. I mean, picture for a moment that Berlin Wall. It's not just the physical barrier. It's what that barrier represented. It represented two opposing ideologies. It represented families being separated. It represented two radically different futures for two halves of a city. And so the wall had to come down. And for Paul, that dividing wall was a symbol for the ceremonial wall that existed prior to Christ's death to keep the Jews unique, to keep the Gentiles out. That wall had to come down. And so all these ordinances, circumcision, sacrifices, food restrictions, washings, Jesus abolished them when he went to the cross. He made them obsolete. When he died, he fulfilled all those things. No dietary restrictions because he was the bread of heaven. No circumcision because now baptism was to be the sign. No washings because Jesus spoke a word over us that were clean. No sacrifices because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Here's what Paul's getting at. Peace is not passive. Look at the verbs here. Christ is breaking down the dividing wall. He's abolishing the law of commandments. He's creating a new man. There's a guy who ministered here, a pastor, maybe a decade or, or longer ago. He was a South African, a white South African who ministered during the apartheid time in South Africa. And he wrote a book called We Start at Finish. Now, I'll be honest, I didn't read the book. But I love the title. I love the title. We start at finish. We don't start at start. See, many of us think that when it comes to reconciliation, when it comes to peace, that we need to do something in order to secure that peace. But Jesus has already done it for us. We don't start at start, but for others of us, we think we finish at finish, that Jesus has done the work, so now everything should be good. Why do I have to forgive? Why do I have to be with that person? But the reality is we start at finish. There's a journey still to be walked. There's reconciliation still to have. There's people we still need to choose to forgive and to walk with. We got a race to run in our relationships in our church. Now, I'm a storyteller. I love telling stories. I love telling stories from my personal life. But the problem with this passage is I can't tell you stories of offenses of of people I had in this church. Because I wouldn't want you asking them for stories of offenses they had with me. But I can tell you that as I look at this front row, there have been times that we have had offenses with each other. And yet we've chosen to bury it at the finish line to go back to the cross, to go back to the finish line. And it's buried. So you don't know about conflicts that we have. Why? It's hidden underneath the cross. It's been dealt with. Sometimes we gotta go back to that finish line. When that offense rises, we grab that person and we say, hey, let's go back to the finished work. Let's choose what Jesus has done over our own pettiness, our own offenses our own insecurities. Lastly, why? Because this is painful. This is hard. It's easier just to get up and go to another church, to go to another small group, to go to another service. Why? Why is peace worth contending for? Here's the last line. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So Christ, who is our peace, is wanting to make peace in us. And that's the invitation we receive from Christ, that when it's too hard, when it's too painful, when it's too uncomfortable, that's okay. Because Jesus is making peace on our behalf. And a little bit of discomfort allows you to taste the extreme discomfort that he endured for you. See, when you stand in a relationship, when you choose to every day to get up and to keep going, to choose that person, to choose forgiveness, to ask for forgiveness, you get a little bit of a taste of what Jesus did for you. You get a little taste of the peace that he embodies. And you get a little bit more of the peace that he's making in your life and the relationships around you. Amen. I'm the lead pastor of Grace Covenant Church Capitol Hill. And yet, one of my favorite people in the church is my... I, is it okay to have a favorite people in the person in the <laughs> church? Maybe not. A person I'm very fond of in the church. I don't know if he's here. Pastor Mark. Pastor Mark, where are you? There you are. And Debbie. Some of you don't know the story. Pastor Mark was a founding pastor of this church. They left to go do other things, to plant other churches. And a couple of years ago, Pastor Mark, Bishop Brett, decided to choose peace. They re-entered Grace Covenant Church. They came on staff. And Pastor Mark and Debbie, as I was, as we were worshiping on Easter, seeing your family there, all their family have, have come at certain points. I just think that beautiful moment was because you all chose peace. And on our 40th anniversary as a church, we started a church in Capitol Hill, the very place where it began 40 years ago, with these two laboring for the next generation to pass down an inheritance of peace. Y'all contending for peace, there's generations on the line. There's kingdom works on the line. There's wards in D.C. There's church plants in the suburbs of Virginia that will be had if we choose peace. There's peace in your relationships, in your families that Jesus wants to secure. Jesus is our peace to make peace in and through you. Amen. Father, as we look at the cross we're reminded that there is nothing in of ourselves that can make peace. Everything about us was hostile to you. We're we're incapable, God, of loving people the way they need to be loved apart from you. And so Holy Spirit, we ask, help us to be a people of peace. Lord, I look at that first generation, Pastor Duke, Bishop Brett, Pastor Jim, Pastor JC, Pastor Mark, their spouses who've chosen peace, and Lord, we are zealous to continue that, to walk as a people of peace. You know, if you're here and there's a specific person God's put on your heart, where there is a conflict, I want to just challenge you as we pray. Just maybe at the end of service, pick up the phone, schedule a time to get coffee, ask that person for forgiveness, forgive that person. Secondly, maybe for some of you, it's just a matter of standing, standing in that relationship. You're you're thinking about giving up, you're thinking about walking away, and you need to stand. Pray for that person. Send them a gift card. Lean into the discomfort. And thirdly, I believe there's some folks here who maybe you don't have an issue with anybody here, but you, in your world, there are people in this church that are at odds, and God's calling you to step in the middle and to do what Jesus did, to be an intermediary. So Lord, we thank you for that ministry of reconciliation. We thank you for your peace. Jesus' name.